Michael, my friend, take us back to that day, April 15th, 2013. You are on the train heading towards the Boston Marathon. Yeah, so it was a day like many others. In, in Boston, we celebrate um, Patriots Day. Is, it's a huge day in the city. And as a special educator at the time, I'd made my way into Boston uh, year after year to celebrate um, all the runners and all the amazing things that the Boston Marathon brings to the city of Boston. Um, and just the fundraising efforts, I think everything about that race, it, it just it, it brings so much joy to watch those people who have dedicated their lives six, eight, ten, maybe even you know months and maybe even a year out who have been training to run 26.2 miles, which is just an incredible feat all on its own. Um, so as an educator in Massachusetts, we have that day off. So I've made that trek into Boston um, on the train, typically, like I did that day, many times uh, to celebrate all that Boston Marathon encompasses. And um, I bumped into a, a friend who I played high school baseball with, who happened to be passing me in a crowded train car. And uh, he told me that he was heading over to the Atlantic Fish Company, which is a restaurant I had never heard of before that day. Um, and he was followed by a couple of friends and family members as they made their way back through the train with the rest of the busy people trying to get into the city that busy morning. Um, so when we got off, uh, a few people that I was with, we made our way over to Atlantic Fish. We found the restaurant, and it was a perfect place to watch the race. Um, it's right there on Boylston Street, about 200 yards from the actual finish line. Um, and they have an outdoor patio with high top tables, and we were able to secure a couple tables right out there on the sidewalk. So you're only feet from the runners, and uh, there's a small space on the sidewalk between us and them. You could stand out there and celebrate and cheer and um, enjoy everything that, like I said, the experience brings. It was a, a beautiful day. It was 60 degrees and sun and clouds mixing, you know, it was, it was, it was something um, that I cherish every year. It's one of my favorite days. Uh, that day was extra special. Um, Boston Bruins were in the, in the playoffs that day, which was great. So there was a puck drop later on in the afternoon. And the Boston Red Sox also play every Patriots day at home at Fenway Park. And it's the earliest first pitch in Major League Baseball each year. Um, so the city is absolutely bumping and it's a, it, it's a great time. So I made my way to Atlantic Fish and I caught up with Danny and his family. And, um, we just got, you know, we had a couple of adult drinks. We were waiting for our lunch and, and, and taking it all in. Um, unbeknownst to us, I, I, I heard what I thought was a cannon blast, but I didn't, I didn't know why initially. Um, I was on the phone with my brother who was coming to the city that day because he was going to get tickets to the Bruins game. He was pretty fortunate to be able to get there. So when um, I was on the phone with him, I was trying to give him directions to the Atlantic Fish Company. He was going to come over and meet me for a drink uh, before he headed over to the Boston Garden to watch hockey. Um, and we heard that first bang and I looked left and I was looking towards the finish line and I could see a large plume of smoke coming out over, over the racetrack. And it didn't make sense because all the elite runners had already finished. Um, we were later in the day. So um, there would be no reason for a cannon to go off at that time of day. So I'm trying to process along with everybody else, everybody that was near me 200 yards from the finish line. And that first, that first explosion was drawn, but we didn't know what was going on. Um, and within 12 or 14 seconds, that second bomb exploded. Um, that bomb was about 14, 15 feet to my left. Uh, it blew me off my feet. The immediate concussion, the, the, the smell of sulfur, it, it overtook all your senses. I couldn't see. That's all I could taste. It filled your nose and your eyes and your mouth. Um, I covered a couple of the women that I was with, and the high-top table that we were at got turned over. There was glass falling from the building around us. The concussion had blown out a lot of the windows, um, and you couldn't see anything. And the ringing in my ear was something that was uh, never experienced. Um, if you ever seen the movie, the hurt locker, I think they do a really good job in, in, in Hollywood sometimes getting some things right. And I think they did a good job of, you know, after experiencing what I did and then going back and seeing that movie a second time, it kind of grasps and, and, and captures that moment. It's, it's that ringing that just overtakes you. Um, you can't, you, you, it's hard to function. So after a few seconds and, and kind of scoping around and trying to figure out where we were going, 
um, I made the determination that I needed to move the two women that I was with into the restaurant to get them some help. So as soon as I could start to see, um, I, I scanned the area around us. Um, the part that I left out was prior to you know that day, I, I struggled with some health conditions after a, a third ACL reconstruction in my left knee. Um, I threw blood clots to both of my lungs, which was really significant in, in the medical world. It, it probably could have taken my life, and I'm very fortunate to still be here after that, that event. Um, so I was on blood thinners. So for me to be within 15 feet of that, that blast and, and still be upright and alive and not cut, um, I was very, very fortunate. So Atlantic Fish on the outside between them and what was once the Forum restaurant that was open at that time, there's a, uh, a small planter that stands probably about three feet tall. Um, it was, its base is made out of concrete and it was kind of um, encapsulated by wood, but it was a small planter that held some beautiful little flowers in the top and it separated the restaurants. And I was standing next to that, thankfully because of the direction of the bomb and that the shrapnel only came up about mid thigh high or two and a half feet high. Um, I was protected by, by the blast. If he had dropped the backpack six or eight feet in a different direction, there's no chance I would have made it. I would have been the first person to bleed out that day on Boston. My goodness. So when I looked over the barricade and I, well, the, the planter and I was starting to move the, the people that I was with, I could see that everybody on the other side of that planter was in really, really, really bad shape. The other piece was that I never even hung up the phone. I was on the phone with my brother. After I heard the first explosion, I said to him, Brad, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but you know, don't come here, stay out of the city. As I was starting to process what I think was happening down the other end of the street. And when the second bomb went off, I had left the phone open. So there was an open line and I had tucked it in my back pocket and I didn't realize that I had done that. So my brother was at a different restaurant in Boston trying to come get me. And he was listening to this, the events unfold live through his brother's cell phone. Um, so he was trying to work on his way to come over and find me still and, and make his way to the, the finish line. So when I moved the two women in, um, I was moving across the, the front of the restaurant in front of the patio. Um, I looked left and in the middle of Boylston Street, I saw a little girl um, who looked like she was in really bad shape. And she was out towards the middle of the street. So as I turned around and, and, and pushed the two females inside of the restaurant, there was a lot of um, staff from the restaurant from Atlantic Fish that were there helping. They were encouraging people to come inside to get out of the fray and uh, supporting them. Um, so I handed them off and I made an immediate left. There was a gentleman walking towards me who looked like he was, his clothes had been blown off, but he was able, he was conscious, he was alert, he was mobile. Um, so I helped him and ushered him into the restaurant as well and then made my way into Boylston Street. I was only two months post-op from a fourth ACL reconstruction. This was the first time I had hurt my right knee. So I was in a pretty big knee brace and at therapy, I was, I was hardly even moving at the time. I wasn't jogging, I wasn't running. I mm -hmm. certainly wasn't able to jump over barricades and, and provide assistance like I did that day. So it's kind of funny how the biology just kicks in and adrenaline helps. Um, so I made my way towards Boylston street. I had to hop the first barricade and made my way into the middle of the street. And there was a gentleman, um, kneeling in the road next to the young girl that I helped. And, uh, his name's Matt Patterson. He was an off duty, uh, firefighter from Lynn, Massachusetts. He was an army veteran and an incredible, incredible hero that day. He was waving me over to see if I could ass assist him. And uh, he said, we need a tourniquet. And, um, I removed my belt and I wrapped it around, um, the young girl's leg to try to stop the bleeding control. Um, the trauma that she sustained. She had lost her leg uh, from just below her knee down. Um, and she was in really tough shape. And she was six years old. Um, she was in shock. She was tearful, but she was uh, able to talk to me a little bit. It was really hard to hear. Um, the concussion, like I said, it, it, it took 80% of the hearing in my left ear. Um, so it was really difficult for all of us to hear that we're that close because the ringing was just still so significant and, mm -hmm. um, and, and present. So Matt looked at me and he said, we need to move her. She's not going to make it. And uh, I agreed. I said, let's, let's go. The problem was that they had stopped all the emergency personnel uh, several blocks away because they were concerned about a third or a fourth explosion. Mm -hmm. So Matt and I, he says, I'm going to scoop her up. I need you to 
keep a hold of that tourniquet and don't let go of her leg. Um, so Jane's father um, was present with their, her oldest brother, and I was kind of trying to communicate with him as the best I could, considering the, the hearing issues. And I told him to follow us, and when we got to the ambulance, we would switch out. So we did that. So Matt and I ran as her older brother and father were in tow, and they followed us up to the ambulance. I passed um, the tourniquet and, and, um, and Jane off to a paramedic at the rear of one of the ambulances, and Matt stayed with her. Um, I asked her father to stay, and I took their oldest son um, to the curb so I could check him and make sure that he was okay. Um, his name is Henry. So I sat with Henry for a minute, and I just kind of checked him out for injury. Even though I was uh, in special education, I had dreams of being a police officer since I was a little kid. And uh, being on the Coumadin had kept me off the job. Um, we didn't know at the time when uh, I was going through the process of getting on that the blood thinning medication was a, a it was one of those things that you just, if you were taking the medication at the time, you couldn't become a cop in any state in the United States. Now, if you were a police officer now and you were on blood thinning medication, it's okay, but they wouldn't hire you. That was a total um, disqualifier. But I had been through some training and preparation. So I had been to a reserve police academy. I've had some first responder training. So I was checking Henry on the side of, this, on the, side of the road on Boylston Street. Um, and he complained about a little bit of leg pain. So I rolled up his pants and I saw like he had some bruising that had started and like perfect little circles on his calf. Uh, nothing had broken the skin, but it looked like he'd gotten shot with a BB gun. Um, like, cause they were like perfect little round balls. And now we know it was the shrapnel that was in there um, with the intention of harming people. But he was very fortunate that he was okay, considering that he was standing with his sister and her fate. So when his father returned, he kept saying, my son, my son, and pointing back to the epicenter of the blast. So I left Henry with his dad. I turned around and I ran back to the epicenter. And when I got there, I found a little boy, which I didn't know at the time, was actually their middle son. That was Martin Richard. He was eight years old. And uh, Martin was in really difficult shape. And unfortunately, he lost, his, he lost his life that day in Boston. He was the youngest victim of the attacks. Um, I was with him and tried to give him as much support as I could with others that were there. And I didn't realize till later that when Matt Patterson had left the ambulance, he was actually somebody that I was with um, working to try to save Martin. Um, and we figured that out through conversations later. So it was, it was a really difficult day. It was my worst day by far. I, I, there's a lot of takeaways, I think, you know, and there's a lot of lessons that I learned that day. And um, as difficult as it was, I think that, you know, I take the, the lens and the perspective of um, two brothers came to the city to try to cause a lot of harm. I think they picked the wrong town. Um, they came to Boston. It's a strong, resilient community. And they also came to the marathon. And what's at the end of the marathon, at the very end of the finish line? It's, it's volunteer doctors and, and nurses and EMTs um paramedics police officers as firemen there's a lot of people there that are willing to help that take on that helping role absolutely there's volunteers there's all those people but there was also civilians and people like myself there was a lot of people that came to the aid immediately that ran in, into the fray instead of running away um so there was a lot of lives that were saved there was uh, a lot of injury um there's a lot of people that lost limbs that day not only jane but there's a lot of people that have overcome a lot of difficult situations multiple surgeries and and, and a lot of trauma and um, have come back and with some resiliency fought to, to do great things. Uh, Jane's doing really well. Um, she's, uh, I watch from afar. I don't have a, a relationship with her or family. Um, at this point, I kind of left the ball in their court and said at some point in her life, if she wants to meet me, I'd be on board. Um, but they've been through a traumatic experience. I couldn't imagine what those parents went through. Um, and they're continuing to go through, right. With, with raising a daughter who's, um, had a significant injury and a son. And I watched as uh, Henry ran the marathon this year, um, with Team MR8, which is in Martin's uh, memory. It's the Martin Richard Charitable Foundation, who's who they run for. And him and a bunch of his buddies and friends from school uh, ran this year in, in Martin's honor for 10 years later. Um, and it was, it was very impressive to watch. Um, but so it's, 
like I said, it was like, it was my most difficult day. It was one of those experiences that I could never imagine, but I try to take the lens of, you know, there was a lot of good that came out of that as well in all the horror in the, in the, in the love and in the support will always outweigh all the hate that those two, those two gentlemen tried to bring that day. Um, and it's, uh, it's one of those experiences you'll never forget. I can't even imagine Michael. I just want to just honor you for a moment. I mean, here you are, right? You, you told me earlier, you had always wanted to be a police officer and you were like dead set that this was going to happen. And you kept hearing from people that you were well on your way. And then at the last moment, they're like, oh, nope, you are disqualified because you're on the uh, blood thinners. And so mm -hmm. I'm sure that that was just like a punch to the gut and maybe Absolutely. knocked the wind out of your sails, but you, you never gave up on that. And here you are going to something in Boston that you love. I mean, like you said, it was just such a fantastic event and everything that it stands for and it means and you're just sitting around with your friends and your family having some drinks just having a great time and then these bombs go off and like you said it's just complete chaos I mean I, I've never been in that situation I can only imagine I I, I just want to honor you because I think most people like you said when something like that happens you innately want to run away from it. Right, yeah, it's and a biology, you right, with, fight or flight. Yes, with everything going on, you chose to run towards this little girl, Jane. And I mean, ultimately, you saved her life, right? I mean, you took off your belt, you made that tourniquet, you helped her get to the ambulance. If you didn't do that, you know, she might not be around today. That's so I just I just want to yeah. commend you, my friend. That is, that is something else. Thank what a you. phenomenal story. So... Moving forward, let's talk about the fact that you had always wanted to be a cop since you were yeah. little. Let's hear that story. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I knew when I was a little guy that I, uh, I wanted to be a police officer. My father is uh, 73 years old. He's still working in law enforcement. He was just reinstated as the chief of police up in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. Um, so he's working, uh, hopefully, a lot longer than I'll ever want to work. I'm ready for retirement now. I'm 44. Um, but he, he's um, very well respected in the law enforcement community. And still, and it's, it's something that I think that um, he thrives on. And it's something I, I, I'm very proud of, um, to have a father who's uh, so well-respected in the community and works really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was little, I watched him, I watched him go off to work every day. I watched him polish his boots and, and make sure that his badge was shiny and his uh, uniform was always pressed. And, um, I was very envious and I was an athlete growing up. I played all kinds of sports and, um, I loved that team, like that feel of being on a team and, and working with people towards a common goal. And I saw that in that profession, I watched him and the guys that he worked with, the way that they, you know, we, we traveled with other police families. We hung out on vacation with them. We went to like, you know, the lake with them, or we just had dinners or families or cookouts. And I felt like we were always surrounded by those people that he worked with. And I saw that as an extension of a team and something that I loved. Um, so I thought when I was little, I was like, oh, let's go. I think it's a, a prideful profession and you can help other people. You can do great work and you can do that with a lot of friends. And it, it was just everything that I was drawn to. So from a very young age, four or five years old, I remember just always wanting to be a police officer. Um, so it was a huge gut punch for me when I, I was working in special education as I was waiting to get on. Um, in early 2000, I started as a, a special educator at an alternative high school in Beverly, Massachusetts. Um, we service kids that we really struggled at their, their public ed. So it was, if you got thrown out of your um, public ed setting for, you know, a social, emotional, behavioral disability, you were a kid that really struggled. Um, we had a lot of kids initially that were involved with gangs and violent pasts and weapon charges and things like that. Um, and the program kind of changed a little bit over the next 10 years, but um, to a wider variety. We started with about 40 kids and we ended up with about 125 at one point. And just a lot of kids that needed a lot of extra support, you know. So I really loved what I was doing, but what I always had in the back of my mind 
and that this was just a placeholder until I could get on the police department. This is a great way for me to learn how to develop relationships and de-escalate upset kids and work with families. And a lot of the things that you're going to do on the street as a cop, just doing it with younger kids. And so it was a great opportunity for me to, to build those skills within myself that could make me a better police officer. But then I, I get to the point where I think all of a sudden the door is open. I'm ready to go to the police academy. I have now spoken to my principal and my director, who was aware of my plan from the, the day I was hired. He always kept saying, so when are they going to call? You know, we don't want to lose you, but we're excited for the next, you know, next phase. And um, I was ready to go. So I quit my job uh, at the school and I had a couple weeks off before I was going to the police academy. I coached high school soccer. I still coach high school soccer now. Um, and I had left my job coaching at the high school where I was working um, because I was off to the academy. It's a six-month commitment where you go. It's five days a week. It's uh, it's a lot. So it's um, it was one of those things I was really excited for, that next challenge. And then to have a doctor come in and open up the chapter and section and be like, you're on chronic anticoagulation therapy, which is a total disgrace. You can't, you can't be a cop in any state. It was one of those things like, oh, my goodness. Like I had to take a total, total 180 in my career. Um, I was fortunate that I called my school back and when I found out this was going to happen after some processing and I was able to get my job back working in, in education. But there was always a piece of me that felt as though there was something missing. And um, that was really, really, really hard for me. It was, um, like you said, that gut punch of, okay, so that door's finally closed. and There's nothing I could do. So I met with my hematologist a couple of times at Mass General Hospital and just, you know, begged basically to say, hey, what can we do? There's got to be another option. I'm a young kid and I'm in my early 30s and... Um, I, I, he's like, you got to be on this med for the rest of your life, Michael. I can't, I, I don't know what else to do for you. Like, that's it. The decision's been made and this is what we're going to do. So I just accepted that. And, and I just had to move forward. And um, I was fortunate. Like I said, I had a job that I loved, but I always felt there was a piece of me missing. So, so it wasn't how, until, how did you work yeah. through that? Like, it, it was hard. You know, I think that it's, it's, it's one of those things. Like I said, I, I was very fortunate that I was in a career and I had a path. Um, I mean, if there's a one and a one B, like a one A, one B, and I was in my one B working in education, um, I was I was fortunate to be there, right? So it wasn't like I'm unemployed. I, I was unemployable. I didn't have, you know. And so it's I think you got to look, like I said, just even about the marathon on my worst day. It's 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 how you it's how you look at difficult situations. What lens can you look through? What perspective can you take to find some positives in there? You know, I I realized that I love kids. I loved the people that I was working with. I was part of a strong team. I found some of those things that I was looking for in the police department working with people towards a common goal every single day. I love the fact that in my set educational setting, no, not one day was ever the same. I wasn't going and punching a clock and sitting at a desk and at four o'clock I walk out and that's how it was going to be. Um, so there was a lot of parallels there. I worked with a lot of troubled kids and I saw some kids on their worst days um, and helped kids like work through some of that stuff. So there's a lot of things that I could find in there um, that I was fortunate about. So I was I was lucky to be where I was, you know, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately I had this plan and, and, and things kind of get in your way, but you get to pick up the pieces and move forward. Um, and I was lucky to land where I was. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So when did that, that change for you? Because today you are a cop. So where did I that am. change and how long? Yeah. Did that so it took a while, right? So, um, it was probably 2006 when I got the, the word that it was never going to work out for me. And I kind of accepted that fate until April 15th in 2013 when I was at the marathon. After the explosion, within a second, I thought I was going to die for the first time. Like I, I literally, that was it. I, I came to, I had a moment where I said, okay, this is, this is how it's going to go down. This is how I'm going to, I'm going to, this is my last day. Mm -hmm. um, and that was in like the immediate seconds after the tree I was standing underneath was on fire. Like I told you, the smoke was like so full and like your senses are just overtaken. And I, I thought I was, I thought I was going to pass. And then when I made my way into the street, I noticed that as I was running in, there was police officers running in the opposite direction of me, going away from the disaster. 
it wasn't until later when I saw a video on, on YouTube and um, I kind of dealt with it in my own way. Some people were like, all right, you need to shut off the news. Don't read another article. And I was the other way. I wanted to immerse myself in everything. I wanted every bit of information. I wanted to know everyone's thoughts and perspectives. I wanted to know where the investigation was going. I wanted to know who was responsible. Um, and that's just kind of how I dealt with it. I talked to like professionals, like they you know, therapists that were like, that's not the way to do it. You're going to, you know, you're going to work yourself up here. You're going to take them, take a break, let your brain relax a little, let your body calm down. But that's not how I did it. And then watching a video on YouTube, I realized that when, before I had gotten to Jane, um, and I was in, I was to her within a minute of the explosion, there was a cop that was kneeling down next to her before I got to her. And by the time I got there, I, I didn't see anybody with her. So I don't know what was more critical in that moment than a six-year-old who was missing her leg and in really, really, really bad shape. And that cop, for whatever reason, went a different direction. He went somewhere else. And that's not a judgment on him, but that's what like lit a fire under me to say, I'm in the wrong profession. Mm -hmm. I need to do this. I need to be out there helping people. And, you know, and, and this is, it's my calling. It's something that I want to do. Um, so after the way I responded and, 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 and felt and all the emotion that came out of that, that day, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this work. And there's no one, there's no one's going to tell me no. I called my hematologist back. I said, listen, this is what I've been through. This is my experience. I have to be a police officer. And he told me I'm crazy and there's nothing I could do again. So I kept hitting that wall in his office. You know, I met with a couple of different people that he worked with and all give me the same response. I think they were sick of hearing me, you know, call the office requesting <laughs> meetings. Right. So I went out and I sought out other opinions. You know, um, my mom was um, a retired nurse. Um, she was in the industry for 49 years. Um, she did, you know, uh, emergency room work. She did discharge planning. She's a case manager. And so she's, you know, well-versed in the industry. Um, the interesting thing is my brother's married to um, a nurse as well. She's now a nurse practitioner, but she was an anticoagulation nurse. So she worked in anticoag and in working with people that were on blood thinners. So I, you know, I did a lot of research, did a lot of talking with them. And uh, I went out and sought fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth opinions. And I, I found a couple of doctors that agreed with me. Um, I was young enough. Um, there's not a lot of people in their, you know, in their early thirties that are, they're on blood thinning medication with the, the gloomy, you know, distant future. If you're going to be on this for the next 50 years. Um, so I find a cardiologist in Salem, Mass. that was like, listen, we can do this. There's enough warning signs. If you feel as though something's going wrong and we put together a plan to get me off the med. And as soon as I did, I called the police department in Damaris where I was still sitting on a list. I was still on the, the civil service list is how we do it here in Massachusetts. I had taken a test. My score was good enough. They, they had me on a list to be hired. And every time that the, the note card would come in that I had to go sign, I, I just had to throw it in the trash because I couldn't, but they held my spot on that list for years, which was very fortunate for me. So I called the chief of police at the time and I said, Hey, I'm coming off the medication. He knew my story. He knew where we were at and he knew that I was waiting to get on and that, you know, we ran into that roadblock. And uh, he said, Michael, my first order of business is to get you on the department as quickly as we can. So next thing you know, I was back at that medical <laughs> with the same office with a different doctor. And we were talking about, you know, the history and went through my medical history and um, checked every box. And then I was off to the academy in just a few weeks. Uh, so the rest is history. Yeah. So it's great. So I've been on the police department now for seven years. Um, I got a great job. It's perfect. So after a couple of years on, on the street as a, a basic street cop and, and doing all those things, playing cops and robbers, um, an opportunity came up where there's a, it was a newly opened school that kind of was two schools that blend together in town. Uh, so it's, it's an agricultural and technical high school. So it's Essex North Shore Agricultural and Technical High School. So it's, um, it's in Danvers, but we service about 50 communities in and around Boston. Um, and it's an amazing place. So they needed a school resource officer. So about eight of us on the department put in for it. The administration came over and interviewed us. And with 15 ex years experience in special ed, um, and I worked there as an administrator. I did a lot of behavioral work with kids. I taught math. So I, I, I'd been in the classroom. I had been in the administrative side of things for, for, for a long time. I had a ton of experience. I coached high school soccer for many years. 
um, it was a perfect fit for me and it was a perfect fit for them. So I was very fortunate to join the team over there. So still employed by the Danvers police, but I report directly to the school every single day. Um, so it is the perfect blend for me. Uh, I'm still in education. So I'm, I'm a cop who works in a school and, and there's nothing better than that. Um, so I think that that work is critical, especially today in today's current culture. Um, I think that we, we need cops in schools, um, to do that work, that special work to, to develop relationships and be the bridge and the liaison between the police department and the community. Um, so I take, I take a lot of pride in what I do every day and I'm very fortunate to be there. Absolutely. And I love that. And I'm just, I'm sitting here smiling because I have this belief and, and this is a sincere belief I have that everything we go through, as long as we don't quit, we just keep, you know, working towards whatever, whatever it is that we are passionate about or a goal that we have. I have this thing where everything we go through was meant to happen to support us in whatever that goal is and achieving that goal. So mm -hmm. I'm sitting here smiling because like you said, that was a perfect fit. You had done all of this work with kids and then this opportunity as a school resource officer opens up and it's just made for you. Yeah. I think I, I agree with you. I think things, you know, I do take the stance that everything happens for a reason. I think that if I became a police officer many years ago, I wouldn't have been in Boston. I probably wouldn't have been at the finish line. I probably wouldn't have been there. I never would have met Jane. Um, I don't know if anybody else was going to go over and, you know, you don't know. So it, it changed my course of history. It changed a lot of things. Um, I think all that work at the school, working with those kids, those troubled kids for so long, it, it, it made me a much better cop. It set me, set the stage for where I am today. Um, I don't know if everything would have, you know, worked out the way it did. And I'm glad it's, it's, it's working out the way it is. You know, I think as hard as it was to have that door closed on me, um, I think it opened other doors and other possibilities and other opportunities for me. And I think I'm right where I belong. Um, I, like I said, I have the best job in the world. I'm fortunate now that, you know, I work with a great team at the school. Um, it still gives me the opportunity to coach high school soccer, which is something I'm passionate about and I've done for over 20 years now. Um, so it, it's, 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 I'm in a good place there and, uh, I'm very fortunate to be there. And I think if it didn't happen in this, in this direction or in this path, I, I don't know where I would be. Absolutely. And I'm sure they love you. Um, something we were chatting about the other day was kindness week. And I really yeah. wanted you to just take a moment <laughs> and share because you have, sort of helped implement some phenomenal things for those kids, especially during kindness week. So if you, yeah. if you wouldn't mind, share a bit. Of with course. That. No. Yeah, I think so. So when I joined the team at um, Essex tech, like one of the first things the administrators were trying to do in their five-year strategic plan was how to, how to improve school culture. What can we do? So I was sitting in a meeting, listening and talking, and um, I pitched an idea that I was kind of, it was a half-baked idea, but it was something that I thought of. And I was like, hey, let's, let's do this. So I didn't know where it was going to go, what it would take on or what kind of spirit would be behind it. But I, I pitched an idea about kindness week. So the Boston marathon, like I told you, celebrated in Boston on Patriots day. And in Massachusetts, we have an April break. A lot of country, a lot of States in the country do like a spring break. Well, we have a break in February for a week. And then we have a break in April for a week. And the first Monday is always Patriots day of April break. So we're off for that whole week as, as educators and our kids are all home. So that's what provides you the opportunity to get into Boston and celebrate the marathon and all the fun stuff. So I said that like, Hey, let's celebrate kindness week, the week leading up to the marathon. So in, in our break, so leading into April vacation, um, I pitched an idea to have a bunch of different ways for our kids, our students and our staff to get involved at school, um, to say, thank you, to give back, to pay it forward. Can we come up with some community service-based projects to go back into the communities and, and pay it forward to them? Um, so it's something that's kind of, we worked on it a little bit and we're like, well, let's see what we can come up with. So I developed a committee there and, and, and talked about it. And I wanted to base it on the ideals of what one Boston day is. And one Boston day is now celebrated on April 15th this year and every year from now on. Um, and it's all about, you know, honoring everything that happened that day in Boston from the first responders and, and, and 
all the difficulties, but all the amazing things too, right? So there was so much kindness that I saw in the, the, just the seconds, the minutes, the weeks, the years after. Um, that community came together like it was incredible. Just the outpouring of donations and support and just personally, like the 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 outpouring of support I had for somebody that was there. Um, it was incredible. There was just a lot of, a lot of support there. And so one Boston day is all about, you know, recognizing that recognizing our first responders, our healthcare workers, um, saying, thank you, holding the door for somebody, giving up your seat on the T or, um, bringing cookies or a donation to the police departments, you know, all these things. It's just, it, it can be something small or large. And I mean, who doesn't need a little bit more of that in their life? Right. Absolutely. So we brought that to Essex tech and we've, we've created kindness week. So it started the first year with a bunch of ideas. So we had the opportunity for kids to um, to sit and record like a 30-second video and say thank you to a family member or a teacher or anybody they had an email address for. And we would immediately send that out. Um, so we're blessed there at the school. We have a lot of opportunities there. We have um, 26, I think it is, different types of shops there. So we have culinary and HVAC, cosmetology. We have everything from equine sciences with horses, arboriculture and landscape, HVAC, plumbing. So there's so many different opportunities there. Like, so that week, our auto kids detailed cars and raised money and then gave that back to a charity of their choice. Um, there's a bunch of different ways that we got together and did that. So our audio and visual kids are the ones that set up the opportunity for kids to come into their shop, record their videos, and they sent those out to families. Wow. We give kids the opportunity just to write thank you cards. Like, when was the last time a high school kid in today's day and age wrote a thank you card in right. hand and then mailed it off to somebody? Right. So we just did, like, little things. So it didn't have to be anything small. I mean, anything big. It could be, like, the smallest little act of kindness. Kids painted kindness rocks, which we decorated outside and made a kindness garden. Um, some of our, our softball team this year went out and when you walked into the school, uh, we have an arrival celebration on the first Monday. So the first day we kick it off. Um, so our mascots out there, we have music playing, the place is filled with staff and, 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 and um, kids are dancing on the way in and the, the softball team decorated the, the entrance with chalk with all just positive messages and things like that. So it's just a great vibe coming in and it's, it's an awesome opportunity to just kind of put kindness in the forefront of your mind for a little bit. Um, so I kick off the week every year where I, I speak to our freshmen and I, I let them know about my story. I talk about what happened in Boston. I talk about what the marathon's all about, what it means to me, what it means to the city. Because um, it's, it's, it's an amazing event, right? And then I talk about my experience there. And then I talk about the kindness that I saw afterwards. And I'm, you know, we talk about what's going to happen in the following week and what we can do as a school community to, to be good to each other. You know, in, in my role as an SRO, I, I spent a lot of time talking to the kids about social media, right? And the power of social media can be really strong and I need these kids to use it for a power for good as opposed to bad. We see a lot of difficult things that are used, especially in and around that with students. I'd say like, you know, I spent a lot of time going through Snapchat accounts and, and people that are sending me screenshots of kids just not taking care of each other through social media. Um, so I talked to them a lot about that. Um, I talked to the kids about trauma and trauma response and when you'd have a difficult thing and it doesn't have to be something as significant as a, a terrorist attack at the Boston Marathon. It could be a divorce or a breakup where you got caught from the cut from the softball team or I cut you as a soccer player, right? So those are hard things for our kids to deal with. Um, so I talked to them a little bit about that. We talk about resiliency um, and I, I give them a bunch of different angles and um, we send them off with a, a positive message of let, let's go make a difference. You know, we have a, a week here where we can do it. Um, and in that first year, it was more staff driven. Like we went out and we did a bunch of things and we brought in the kids on and the kids are really, really taken into this thing. Um, so next year, we're hoping to give away a car uh, mm -hmm. to a, one of our older class uh, students. So we're setting up that, you know, and, and that's what I'm saying. So it's, 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 it's taken on a, a it's taken on a, a whole different turn. And it's, it's what started with this little idea at a, at a staff meeting has turned into a huge event. So it's, it's the biggest event we have at the school each year. Um, and it's just an awesome opportunity for the, the kids to give back and, and say thank you and support each other and the staff get involved too. So it's a fantastic way to, with the ultimate goal of improving school culture.
Absolutely. I love this so much, Michael. Everything starts with a vision, my friend, yeah. and then you go execute. So to listen to you come up with this idea and then everyone coming together to help implement it. And here it is taking, you know, on a, on its own identity and morphing into this huge thing now right. and evolving. I just think that's fantastic. Thank you. I mean, way to lead from the front, brother. <laughs> I'm doing my best, you know. Absolutely. Those kids need great influence. And I mean, you know, you you don't know me that well, but I always say leadership is influence. And so I don't care who you are. I don't care if you have a leadership title. I don't care if you have a team. You are a leader because leadership is influence. And no matter who you are, you have the opportunity to influence those around you every single day. So, you know, make a choice. Do you want to be a good influence or a not so good influence? And right. I think most people want to be a good influence, <laughs> but not many of us recognize the fact that, oh, wow, I am a leader. I can make a difference, right? And then you start doing things and showing up differently. And it does create that ripple effect. Right. And so I just think it's phenomenal. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm completely honored, flawed, taken back. I just, I think it's phenomenal. And so, um, yeah, I'm just very, very grateful for you to be here and share your story, my friend. Tell me if, if anyone has really resonated with your story and want, would like to connect with you, where can they find you? Um, so I have been, you know, traveling the country a little bit and talking about this. So um, as an inspirational keynote, um, I've been traveling to schools and, and sharing my message I'm talking to educators about if they wanted to start. So I've done some workshop, workshops about like if they wanted to start a kindness week or something related to their school and any kind of vision they have, I can be supportive in that. Um, so my website is michaelchasespeaks.com. Um, it's the best, easiest way to get in touch with me. Um, so yeah, just going out and making a positive change. I think, you know, my, you know, kindness is a lifestyle and that's what I, I've always worked behind. I think it's, 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 it's a choice you make and it's something that we have to continue to spread. And um, everybody has the opportunity to be kind. And sometimes we just need a reminder. Um, so that's, that's what it's all about. And I really appreciate you having me on. I'm honored to be here and, um, thank you so much for your time. Well, I appreciate it. And I look forward to watching everything that you will continue to do as you move forward with your mission, my friend. Thank you so much.